Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. It's often said that parents should never outlive their children. The case I'm going to talk to you about today parents did outlive their child, but only by a few moments. In arguably one of the most brutal cases I've covered in some time. Today, we're going to talk about the Lindquist triple homicide. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. 
My friend Jackie Howard is here with me, the executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Tell you what, Jackie, this case is incredibly disturbing. What what can you tell us about the Lindquist family? Joe, this is one of the most brutal cases I think that we have covered so far. We're talking about Matthew, 21-year-old Matthew Lindquist, and his parents, Kenneth and Janet Lindquist. 21-year-old Matthew had an addiction to heroin, and he relapsed. So as he reached out to his dealer to get more, a deal was struck because Matthew owed his dealer money. Matthew made the mistake of telling his dealer, Sergio Correa, that his father had guns in the basement in a gun safe. And he facilitated a plan to have the guns stolen so that he could get more drugs from his dealer, Sergio Correa. The night of the murders, Sergio Correa and Matthew Lindquist exchanged multiple texts with the last one saying, where are you? Matthew, for his part of the scheme, is dressed in his bathrobe, and he meets Sergio and Ruth Correa outside. The couple, instead of exchanging information and guns for heroin, the couple chase Matthew into the woods and stab him repeatedly with a machete, hacking at his body repeatedly over 67 times. They leave the body there in the woods and then proceed into the house, rousting the mother and father out of the bed, wanting the keys to the safe. Both family members were killed, but not immediately. This goes on for about three hours. After Sergio and Ruth Correa leave the home, they set it on fire to try and cover up their crimes. So there's a lot to unpack here, Joe, in this case. Let's start with Matthew, hacked by a machete, left in the woods where his body would not be found for a very long time. So my first question is, if his body had decomposed, and I would say most likely skeletonized, how did the ME and investigators know how many times 21-year-old Matthew was stabbed and mutilated? You know, Jackie, the... One of the terms that has come to mind from friends of his, they described him as being dope sick. And it gives you an indication of the status of his life relative to heroin addiction. And and he's driven to this point, I think, by this this hunger that he has, that he gives away this information. He got involved with two very, very violent people here that are capable of taking an instrument like a machete. And a machete is is... You know, people think of it as almost like a sword, but it's it's actually a chopping instrument. Uh, people have used it for years, uh, hiking. You know, clearing out clearing out areas as they move through brush. It's also used um, in fields. Uh, famously, it's used in taking down bamboo and sugarcane and all those sorts of things. It's got a very sturdy blade. Uh, the shank of the blade is very, very thick. It almost acts like a long axe, if you will. And that does have a point on the end, so you can facilitate a stabbing motion with it. But many of the injuries uh, that you're going to have will be slashes or cuts. And just so our audience understands the difference between a stab and a cut is a stab. And it's pretty logical. A stab is going to be deeper than long. And, of course, uh, a slash, slice, 
a hack is going to be longer than deep in most cases. And the way this instrument is made, it's got a lot of weight on the backside. So when you bring this thing down, generating that energy, the weight is traveling with it. And that, that energy transfers through the blade to the point of impact. So not only are you cutting through the tissue, um, the external tissue, like the skin, the subcutaneous fat in this area, but you're going through muscle. And then as you strike bone as well, you will have kind of a staining or an indwelling hemorrhage over the surface area. Now, the trick is, the trick is when you're trying to examine a body that has been down for months, and that's, that's the way they're framing this, is how exactly do you go about delineating what is a uh, antemortem, remember pre-death or, or prior to death, an antemortem insult or injury versus a postmortem injury. And so it, when you're there with a body like this, um, and it, trust me, it, it's a rough environment to be in when you're in a, in a morgue with a decomposing body. Um, with this many injuries, we're talking upwards of 60 insults here. Um, it's a very uh, painstaking event because you have to be able to separate. You have to be able to look at all layers of the tissue and say, okay, is this generated as a result of decompositional change or is this a direct result of trauma? And people will say, well, you know, Morgan, why in the world would that be important? Well, let me, let me kind of explain that to you because one of the elements in all three of these deaths is this, the specter of torture that's coming up and we hear more about it with the parents, but for every injury that an individual sustains from a legal standpoint, that in that increases the horror that is involved with this, this increases the pain that's involved with it. And it it also increases the duration to which an individual is subject to this. Let's just say that, they had taken him out and dealt him a single fatal blow. Well, that, there's a huge, there's a gulf of difference here. The way the law looks at this, um, with a single fatal blow, as opposed to an individual that has been literally, literally attacked over sixty times with this edged weapon. Knowing what little bit I do know about how wounds like this are categorized and looked at. You're looking at the nicks in the bones that remain is what gives you the number of of hits that were made, which tells me, if I think about this logically, tells me that each one of these impacts was made. I guess what I'm trying to say is each one of these impacts is almost if they were still swinging a baseball bat, for example, which we're going to talk about a little bit later with, with the parents. So, I mean, these were hard nicks. It's not like you just started swinging because it had to go all the way through the skin down to the bone. You're right, Jackie. And, and I'm glad that you brought this up because this is a big area of delineation in um, in forensic pathology, particularly as it applies to sharp force injuries. I want everybody to listen to this. As it applies to sharp force injuries compared to blunt force injuries. And if, it, if people think about they hear the term laceration for instance, lacerations are associated with blunt force. That is a blunted object, like a baseball bat or even a hammer. And you sustain a laceration to your skin. And one of the ways we tell that things, that this is a laceration, generally the injury will be very jagged. 
Um, when you look at the edges of the weapon, you'll have the tissue that is still connected. And this is, there's actually a term that's applied to this called tissue bridging. And if, if people will kind of interlace their fingers in front of them and look at them, that's tissue bridging. It, it kind of gives you an idea so that the tissue doesn't come completely apart. That's an indication of blunt force injury. And then along the margins, you'll have little bits of hemorrhage in there. Now, if you're talking about sharp force, say like, for instance, with an axe or a machete, there will be no tissue bridging. And the reason is, is that that blade is milled and it is its sole purpose in life is to divide the tissue. So you will not have this kind of uh, uh, conjoined edge. It'll no longer have that that uh, those little bridges, stringy bridges of tissue connecting it. So when we go to look at an insult in the street, remember, we're not there. We're, we're investigators that are coming up after the case. We weren't there to witness the event. We have to apply our knowledge as to what we're seeing. Is this a beating or is it a stabbing? Because many times these cases are equally as bloody. So when you're looking at these injuries, you don't know what you have, particularly, you know, where Matthew's remains were found. Keep in mind, not only is he decomposed, but he's out in the woods. You're not talking about the, the best lighting situation, the best environment to examine something. And it's very important to understand that you need to do as best of an assessment at the scene to collect all of the data and evidence at the scene relative to the injuries that you have or as best you can figure it out. Because let's say, for instance, if someone's hit with a baseball bat, a wooden baseball bat, maybe that bat splinters. Well, if you see evidence of injuries that say this is a blunt force trauma and suddenly see a piece of wood, well, that's important in knowing the nature of this injury. So you have to be able to contextualize these injuries at the scene as best you can. You don't want to disrupt anything, but try to understand them at the scene. And, and out in these environments, it's very, very difficult to conduct a thorough assessment. Many times this, this can only be accomplished at the morgue. Given the fact that Matthew's body was in the woods for a very long, extended period of time, the, there's no way of knowing what his other injuries are. Is there? There's no way to know if he was beaten. All we know is that his body was hacked. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And you can, there are certain things sometimes that you can pick up on. And, you know, one of the best ways to do an assessment on a body that you think has multiple trauma to it. Um, and anytime I'm, you know, I teach coroners uh, nationally. And one of the things that I always teach them, if you have access to x-ray equipment, x-ray that body in the bag. Even before you open the bag, x-ray that body as soon as you can from head to toe in order to appreciate anything that might be there, you know, so that you can go back and interpret it before the body gets disrupted. And many times your observations are compromised to a great degree because of the level of decomposition. So you, you try to assess it as best you can from not just, you know, an external uh, examination, but also visually and photographically. Sometimes you can do photographic enhancement. You can certainly do x-ray. And then it's at that point in time that you can go back and you can actually uh, actually do the, uh, uh, the autopsy. Now, one of the things that also compromises decomposed bodies that have injuries like this, particularly this grotesque uh, level of injury, is that as the body is going through the decompositional cycle, Many times what's going to happen is that you will have uh, postmortem animal activity as well as insect activity. And believe it or not, these animals and insects 
actually disrupt or change the presentation of the wounds or the injuries. And that can lead to problems as well. Joe, are you going to see, knowing that Matthew is addicted to heroin, are we going to see any kind of damage remaining on the body because of that? Well, you know, that's an excellent question as it applies to IV drug abuse. Uh, you know, traditionally, one of the things that they talk about um, many times are these little granulomas that come up as a result of injection sites. Um, if you've ever seen, you know, the old term was railroad tracks. You would see people that say, for instance, inject on the surface of their forearm right into, and here's a fancy term that people um, people use in medicine, and that's the crook of the arm. The crooks of the arms, those are both referred to as the ACF or the intercubital fossa. Uh, and what we do is we go into this area and we will literally take our gloved hand if we suspect an individual is uh, suffering from heroin abuse or IV drug abuse, and we rub our fingers over the edge of it, even in a postmortem examination, and you'll feel these little kind of nodular areas. And there's any number of reasons why these things pop up. Sometimes it'll be scar tissue, but other times uh, you'll have uh, this kind of deposition beneath the skin of where people have injected with heroin and, you know, they cut heroin with um, and other drugs with different types of things. They'll cut it with like talcum powder or quinine, these different things, and th they don't necessarily metabolize. And sometimes those things get caught up underneath the skin. So you get these little rigid bumps um, on the surface of the skin. You know, people famously, or particularly back in the early um, 70s, you would see people with complex spiderweb tattoos on both of their ACF. And sometimes we would consider that as coverage for IV drug abuse because it would conceal this area. Of course, your your eyes immediately drawn to to these complex tattoos many times. But, you know, we have to be very, very careful. And, and when you're dealing with a decomposed body, um, it even makes it more difficult. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Years ago, when I got out of my field full-time, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I had sleep disorder. I had depression. And for me, I had to turn to someone to talk to somebody that could aid me along the path to healing, to restore me to that person that maybe I was at one point in time, to make me better for not just myself, but my family. If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You can do this anytime that you like. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com bags today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com slash bags. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the most difficult cases a death investigator can work is a case involving a decomposing body out in the woods. But, you know, this is an interconnected case. We don't just have one body. We've got three in total. And when the investigators showed up at... Uh, at the home of Matthew's parents, they walked into a very unique scene, didn't they, Jackie? They did. It's it's almost overwhelming. Kenneth Lundquist, the dad, had been beaten in the head with a baseball bat repeatedly. He was pulled out of his bed, out of a of a slumber by these home invaders, and they beat him with a baseball bat to get his information. We know that Kenneth's skull was broken into more than 30 pieces, Joe. Yeah, it was. And so our listeners will understand the next time you've boiled an egg, for instance, or if you have access to a boiled egg. And this is kind of the ways, uh, one of the ways that I've taught investigators in the past relative to blunt force trauma of the head. If you will simply take a boiled egg, a hard boiled egg and crack it one time, strike it one time on a firm surface and then turn it where you impacted that egg, that'll give you an indication of how complex um, interlocking or intercommunicating 
depressed skull fractures can be. And, you know, it forms this kind of very delicate web on the surface of the egg. The skull is really no difference, dependent upon how much force you bring to bear. And one of the things that's, that's kind of tough for us as investigators out in the field and then for the pathologists back at the morgue is to be able to delineate between, well, this is a point of impact. This is a point of impact. As you rightly mentioned, the skull has is m- multiple fragmentations all over the surface. So it's you have to try to zero in on what was the bullseye here. And for every bullseye that you can come up with, that's an individual point of impact. Remember, we were talking about Matthew and we talked about the level of torture. Okay. Um, was there torture involved with his death? Maybe. I mean, why do you need to you know, hack somebody over 60 times, the same principle here. Uh, you're trying to coerce somebody into giving you information in this case, where are the keys to the safe, because we want access to your guns and any other valuables that might be in there. So with every strike, maybe the individual is doing this in a torturous manner in order to elicit information until they wind up beating this man to death uh, with, according to witnesses, a baseball bat. Um, and the best the uh, pathologist could come up with is that it was some type of rounded edge weapon that they had used. It wasn't, if you think about like a cinder block that has very acute edges to it, it'll leave a specific mark. But when you're talking about a baseball bat, it's kind of rounded and curved. Um, and it's not as well defined many times. So, you know, with the the rounded edge of a baseball bat, sometimes it's very difficult to kind of um, uh, make a specific determination where each impact was. And when you're talking about over 30 fragments, um, the skull actually becomes almost like a jigsaw puzzle at that point in time. Because I have I have opened heads at autopsy as an autopsy assistant and skull literally comes apart in my hands. Uh, particularly in a, in a case that consists of this much overkill. When you are hit in the head, or actually anywhere on, on your body, your bones, but when you're hit in the head, Joe, we think of an impact like on a windshield, and we see the first impact, and we see all of these little breaks and shatter marks, spider webs, as you mentioned, that radiate out from the hit. Does that happen in the skull, too, or do you just get an automatic break? Uh, no, not necessarily. A lot of it, it's it's completely dependent upon... Um, the type of instrument used, let's say if you're talking about a wooden bat as opposed to a metal bat, and the amount of of energy that's that's brought to bear. If you have some very diminutive person that's, that's swinging a baseball bat at a firm surface like a skull, um, they're not going to bring as much energy to bear. Say, for instance, if you had some 250-pound brute that's swinging it. You know, it just makes sense. And so... What you will happen, what will happen sometimes is that you might have an initial underlying fracture on that um, that initial contact, but the skull doesn't completely fracture at that time. But once that area is struck again, the structural integrity of the skull is is weakened because of an underlying fracture. It might just be a hairline fracture. Now you go back in, you hit that area again, now it shatters. But, of course, you can have an individual that can swing hard enough sometimes, I would imagine, um, that they could cause a depressed skull fracture with one blow. However, 
you've got an individual that is striking multiple times. So every time that skull is fractured, guess what? The actual architecture of the, the surface, the external table of the skull and the internal table, it's becoming progressively more weak. So it's easier to fracture the skull on further strikes, you know, as you go through time, you know, you hit it once, you hit it twice. And then by the time, you know, you work your way up to 10 times, the whole structural integrity of the skull begins to be compromised. And so it's easier to fracture after that initial break takes place. So what ends up being the cause of death, Joe? Is it the breaks in the skull, the bleeding out, the skull fragments that impede into the brain itself? Mm. What ends up being the cause of death? Yeah, again, excellent question. And it's a combination. It's a perfect storm, if you will, because um, first off, you rightly mentioned this kind of fragmentation of the skull and it creates these little shards. The shards become like almost like little missiles and they've got real jagged edges. And you've got I don't know that people understand this, but you've got these little micro vessels throughout your, your brain. And so if you compromise that one area that struck, these little shards go into the brain. It goes through the dura, which is the sac underlying the skull that the brain kind of floats around in. And it's a wash in, in um, uh, cerebral spinal fluid. It breaks through these little micro vessels and it goes into the tissue of the brain. Now, that is a survivable injury. People have survived that if you can get them to the hospital in time. But continuing to strike the head you create more of these. So you've got bleeding, you've got bleeding within the brain. And then in that, and now you've got bleeding that's escaping in between the brain and the surface of the skull. So it's swelling. And this creates a major problem for the brain. The brain's ability to function has been compromised. Not only is it bleeding out, now the brain isn't getting sufficient amount of oxygen. The brain will essentially shut down as a result of oxygenated blood and this hemorrhage that's going on. One other factor that plays into this is that you can have coup and contra coup injuries, which is kind of where the brain sloshes back and forth inside the skull. So if you're struck on the right side, the brain might travel over to the left side. Remember, it's floating in the sack and strike the left side. So you can get communicating areas of hemorrhage on the opposite side of the brain. And so these are like concussive injuries. And so it's a perfect storm and the individual will eventually lose consciousness and uh, uh, certainly die um, if, if left unattended. And in this attack, that was certainly the case. We know that Janet Lindquist was also beaten with the bat. Is there any difference between men and women when it comes to these kind of injuries? I, I don't know that, that it is uh, uh, gender dependent. Um, I, I think that, you know, um, women... Uh, when it comes to their skeletal system, uh, here's another kind of fancy term that particularly forensic anthropologists like to use. They describe describe um, female skeletons as being gracile, and gracile means fine, and they're not as robust as male male skeletons. And it's like if you could take, um, say, somebody was comparing uh, Jackie Howard's skull to Joseph Scott Morgan's skull. You've got these kind of fine, dainty features in your brow line, for instance. Mine, you know, I, I'm, I've kind of got like this prominent brow line, and it's just the way we're we're constructed. And so my 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 skeletal system is more robust than yours. 
So I think that it would probably, particularly if you've got a, um, a, a big angry male wielding a baseball bat, it's going to take less energy to, um, to kill her as opposed to the husband. Well, in fact, Joe, that's not what happened here. Janet was not killed by the bat. She was also strangled with a rope. Yeah, and that's, you know, when you look at this, and again, I go back to the word that I used earlier, the T word, torture. You know, not only is she sustaining blunt force trauma, but she was also uh, garroted as well, where um, a ligature was placed around her neck. And according to Ruth, who is the stepsister in this case that bore witness to this and participated in this event, um, she saw the male perpetrator have his foot on Janet's back as she is on the floor pulling up on this rope and attempting to strangulate her with this thing. So when you're, when you're the pathologist that's going to do the examination on her body, not only do you have to interpret these head strikes that she sustained, this blunt force trauma, you know, that we talked about earlier, you're also going to have to look at her neck very carefully externally because, you know, as a, all our listeners know, you know, you look for these ligature marks on the neck that are these kind of deep abraded areas, you know, abrasion, you know, like you get on your knee, if you fall down the skin of your knee, you can get these uh, in the folds of the neck. <clears throat> and one of the things that you're going to look for is the furrow. And this furrow is generated and by the ligature. And just keep this in mind, the more narrow the ligature. Let's say you've got a tiny piece of a of a nylon woven cord or rope, very narrow. It's going to create a deeper furrow as opposed to say like um, a man's belt because it's got a wider surface area. So, you if if you're looking at a body that you suspect has undergone ligature strangulation, um, and you don't have a ligature. One of the great clues that's left behind on the surface of the neck is this deep, narrow furrow. And sometimes if you look very, very carefully, you can see the pattern of the rope. Say, for instance, shaped almost like a woven or herringbone pattern. If you're very careful in your examination and photography, you can pick up on that. And why is that important? Well, it's important because if you find something that's similar to that ligature in the possession of a suspect, you can first match it up visually. And secondly, you can test that ligature that might not be with the body for the victim's DNA. And also, you can test it for the DNA of the perpetrator. And that way, you've got this, this item that would be circumstantial evidence, and you, but it's very strong. You can say, well, how do you explain the fact that her DNA is on the ligature and your DNA is on the ligature? And that's something that the defense would have to explain away. So that's very important in your assessment. And we also are going to be looking at the hyoid bone. You'll definitely look at the hyoid bone in a case like this. You know, hyoid, though, the lion's share of the time is almost universally associated with manual strangulation has nothing to do most of the time with ligature strangulation. Manual strangulation means that someone places their bare hands um, onto some, the surface of someone's neck. And this is the trick here with the hyoid bone, the hyoid bone. Uh, first off, it's the only non-articulated bone in the body. And that means it's not connected to any kind 
uh, any other portion of the skeletal system. It's there merely to anchor the tongue. It's an odd little bone. Pathologists describe it as a bird-like bone. It's kind of shaped like a bird. Um, and in manual strangulations, it is many times found to be fractured. And they would take very, uh, very good care with her hyoid bone to kind of take a look at it, look for little focal areas of hemorrhage, and also to examine to see if it has, in fact, been fractured. That's only going to come about if you apply direct forceful pressure. And look, it's very high up in the neck. If if folks at home will essentially touch their throat and find where the Adam's apple is, you have to go superior. That means above the level of your of your Adam's apple in order to find the hyoid bone, that's how, how, how high it is. And even a better way to think about it is think about your tongue. Think about how your tongue is anchored in the back of your throat. Most people don't sit around and think about that sort of thing. You know, leave it to somebody like me to think about that. But your, your tongue is actually anchored in the back by this bone. And that gives you an idea how high up it is. You know, a lot of people make a lot of hay over the hyoid. You know, they think about the only, I think in my memory, the only traumatically fractured hyoid bone I have ever seen over my years as medical legal death investigator that was not associated with manual strangulation was in a car accident and like a 1968 Buick Bonneville that went over a three-story bridge over the guardrail, impacted nose down, and the driver actually hit the steering wheel with their throat and it fractured that bone. That's the only time I've ever seen it outside of manual strangulation. I've never seen it in ligature strangulation. It, it does happen, they tell me, but I've just never seen it. There was one other beating in this household, Joe, and that was of the family dog. The dog was beaten with a golf club. So what's going to be the difference in the injuries that you're going to see? Obviously, size, for one, the difference between a baseball bat and a golf club. But you're looking at two different elements, wood versus metal. Yeah, you are. And, you know, dependent upon the shape of the particular club for folks that aren't golfers out there, you know, you've got um, different types of clubs, obviously, uh, that people carry around in the bag. You've got irons and you've got woods. Well, woods are not necessarily woods any longer. They're a composite or, you know, some type of metal head, but they're oddly shaped. And I've seen golf club strikes on people and they, they marry up to a very specific pattern because they've got these real interesting angles to them. They're not as nonspecific as, say, for instance, a baseball bat. Golf clubs are very uh, easy to kind of delineate between that and a baseball bat or, or a pipe, for instance, because of the heads of the club. You know, the head of the club is where all of the weight is. And also the motion that has to take place with a golf club. Remember, the shaft on the golf club is... Uh, you know, a third longer essentially than a baseball bat. You know, it's, you really have to wind up and strike somebody. So you would, you would have to have an individual in a very submissive position, say for instance, down on the floor. Um, it would require a very long, long backswing, if you will, or over the top of the head to come down in kind of a chopping motion in order to use this thing because the shaft itself is so long. So it's going to compromise your ability to deliver energy as opposed to with a baseball bat. You can choke up on this thing and you've got such weight at the head of it that it can you can really debilitate somebody with a very short stroke of the baseball bat. So would an investigator look at those injuries and know immediately that it was done by something that's metal as opposed to wood? 
Mm, yeah, perhaps in ideal circumstances. But if you're at a scene, um, again, I go back to this idea of it's not the best environment to do that assessment because lighting is poor. Your ability to to examine the body in total, because one of the things we do at scenes is that it is considered a best practice in medical legal death investigation to never remove clothing at scenes. Because you want, remember, most of the time, contrary to what you see on television, you're not going to have a forensic pathologist at the scene that's going to come out to the scene most of the time. That it does happen. Don't get me wrong. But most of the time, you're going to have a medical examiner, investigator, a coroner investigator that's going to go out there and do the initial examination on the body. So in those environments, they don't want to remove the clothing. So let's say that Janet had strikes all over her torso. Well, you might can lift up her shirt her nightgown and see these strikes, but you're not going to be able to appreciate them in detail like you will be able to when you get the body back to the morgue and you have time to spend with the body, do the x-rays, and then you undress the body under these intense lights. You know, for those that have never been in an autopsy suite, it's it's like going into surgery. You know, these lights in an ideal surgery suite or an ideal uh, autopsy suite, the lights are surgical lights. They're very, very intense so that we can pick up on fine detail in this environment. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not. 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know, in a case where you've got multiple blunt force trauma, you've got um, two people that have suddenly, you know, just been awakened in the middle of the night. Uh, there's so much going on in this environment under normal, if you want to call it normal circumstances. Jackie, you introduce the element of fire into this environment, and it just makes for total and complete chaos. One of the things that is particularly disturbing about this case is that we find that Janet had smoke in her lungs. She had breathed in smoke. Her husband had not, which means he was dead before the fire was set. She was not. Yeah, and that's that's one of the major things that we look for um, when we're talking about structural fire, where we have bodies in the environment. You know, you, you pose this question, and I'm using you in the universal sense as an investigator. You're thinking, you know, the, you're thinking about the origin of the fire. You're thinking, I think for me, I'm thinking of the purpose of the fire. Is the, is, is the fire a purposed event, or is it something that just spontaneously occurred? Um, you know, and here, here's the thing. When you go into an environment, I would, I'd be willing to bet you dollars to donuts when you're looking at this at this scene as an investigator and you've got this fully involved house fire, you're not thinking necessarily that this is some type of homicide. You're thinking that you got two poor souls that died as a result of, of a house fire. But you know, our, our mantra in medical legal death investigation, and people need to understand this is that I don't care how old you are. I don't care how infirmed you are. I don't care what kind of indwelling medical process you have. Every death is a homicide until proven otherwise. And this is why. Because if you walk into a scene like this in a house that has been fully involved in flame and you just say, well, you know, it's probably an accident. You're going to miss the bigger picture here. You have to assume these people died under nefarious circumstances, under suspicious circumstances. Because if you don't, if you don't make that assumption going on, you're going to miss something. And in this case, it, it would appear that, you know, after the bodies had been examined, that they determined that there was trauma that was not related to the fire. And you mentioned a soot in the airway. And when we examine bodies at autopsy, one of the things that we'll do is that 
we'll take a very close look at the airway. And when I say airway, we do look at the lungs, but I'm talking about just the throat. Um, the trachea, for instance, when we open the trachea and we begin to look, what you'll see in people that have actually inhalated or breathed in fire debris is you'll see little flecks along the way, all on the surface. And here's another thing that people don't think about, and this is why it's so horrific. You'll notice that there is indwelling inflammation on the mucous surfaces of the trachea and the airway. And the reason is, is that these people, these poor people are breathing in hot, super, super, super heated air. And it's literally scorching, scorching these, these very tender membranes in there. So you'll see the fire debris, little flecks of burned debris that are coming about, little flecks of soot. And then you'll see this inflammation that's taking place. Whereas if an individual was deceased prior to the fire, None of that is going to present, and that's just logical, um, because they're not breathing. Ergo, they're not inhalating anything that's being created by this fire in this environment. As you and I discussed this case before we went to broadcast, Joe, you taught me something new again. I had asked you when a body was destroyed by fire like this, how do you still know about the breaks? And then you brought up breaks caused by a fire. What is that? Yeah. Yeah, we have something that's actually called heat fractures. Isn't this interesting? This is something we, it seems like we always cycle by or circle back to this on body bags. You know, we've talked about heat as it relates to the speeding up of the decompositional process. Um, we've talked about heat as it applies. Remember, expanding gas. We started talking about superheated gas when we we're talking about gunfire-related events. And now here we are talking about um, superheated environments relative to fire deaths and what happens. Um, bone has a certain level of tolerance uh, to heat, obviously, just, just about like anything does uh, on, uh, in our world. And so when, when bone attains a specific heat because of the environmental events that are going on around it, in this case, a house fire, uh, the bone, actually, the heat causes the bone to fracture. And you can see it throughout most of the skeletal system, uh, but it, it again, we're back to the skull. It really, really presents in the skull. So when we reflect back and, you know, we begin to think about poor Kenneth that was beaten so many times, the skull was fractured. Not only is the pathologist going to be looking at these impact fractures that are taking place, they're going to have to delineate between those and what might have been a heat-related fracture. Because once... Once the heat in this environment, you know, jumps up above 500 degrees, you can get this, uh, these events that occur with the, with the bone, where the bone literally begins to kind of crack apart. And it's a real interesting kind of manifestation. And it makes it all the, it kicks it up another level when you begin to try to conduct your assessment, you know, is what I'm looking, looking at something called what we refer to as heat artifact, or is this, um, injury artifact, you know, and so you have to be able to kind of uh, uh, parse that out, if you will, and try to understand it. Because listen, we can talk about this from a sciencey standpoint all day long, but when a trial like this goes to court, the the lawyers, the attorneys that are both prosecuting and defending this case, they're going to want to know those answers. Because again, we go back to this idea of torture. We go back to this idea of uh, bringing about the death of an individual. What is it? 
how, what's the sequencing of these events? And many times um, that has to be very finely examined and explained before the court. So how is an ME, a pathologist, an investigator going to be able to distinguish between a blunt force injury and a fire fracture? Mm, yeah. Well, with the blunt force trauma, uh, one of the things that we're looking for, this blunt force kind of, remember we talked about the egg kind of shattering. One of the things we're going to be looking at there is that you'll get these kind of multiple spider web fractures that kind of extend out and you'll have one central kind of bullseye that takes place where like with a baseball bat and it doesn't happen in every case, but most of the time you'll get this kind of radiating fractures that go out from it like spider web with a heat fracture. First off, the bones can be very, very dry because all the water is being absorbed out of it and it kind of cracks, if you will. It'll look completely different than a depressed skull fracture. And when I say depressed skull fracture, that comes about as a result of, of bludgeoning. The, the skull actually fractures and, and depresses. It goes down and creates kind of a, uh, not really a hole, but it, it creates a, a depressed area on that surface. The heat fracture just kind of travels along the surface of uh, what's called the external table of the skull, and then it just kind of splits. So that's one of the things, that's one of the, the, the key factors you'll be looking at along the way here. And also, is there any kind of indwelling hemorrhage that you can appreciate in the bone? And if that is existent, you're going to know that that's probably an antemortem event that this occurred prior to death, whereas the heat fracture, of course, is going to occur after death. Joe, for a body to be decimated by fire, there has to be a consistent heat source at a very high temperature if you're just setting a house on fire and leaving is it going to be the same thing yeah you're you're going to have to uh first off make sure that you've got a supply of oxygen um that you have an ability to create fire you know some people do it with matches some people do it with flares uh, some people do it with electricity i mean there's any number of ways that people do this then you have to have something that's kind of going to flash over, if you will, an accelerant that's going to be kind of the primer that's going to get the ball rolling once you once you put flame to it. And then you have to have the heat source, you know, bodies or you have to have a fuel source. And unfortunately, bodies are generally not great heat sources um, or let me rephrase that. Bodies are not great fuel sources. Um, it, it takes, you know, even and we've talked about this previously on body bags. Um even with cremations, you know, cremations, you know, we're talking 1800 degrees and for a sustained period of time with a natural gas supply. Um, what happens is as the building, the structure in this house, in this case, like a, a house fire, as the structure begins to collapse, um, that becomes your fuel. And the body is essentially laying among this debris that's burning. So it takes a while for this to happen. and you know, we talked about sitting the airway relative to the fire. One of the things that we also look for is um, at a scene to kind of make a, a determination or fire investigators do is like, for instance, the area, say if you're laying on a carpeted surface or the victim is, you're going to take up that carpet. Also, if there's any clothing remaining, you're going to take up the clothing and this will be sent to the crime lab and it will be tested. And kind of an interesting thing we do in the morgue that people might not be aware of is that when any kind of clothing, no matter how charred it is, we will take that clothing off of a body. And if people just imagine a gigantic silver paint can in their mind, because that's specifically what it looks like, we take the clothing and we drop it into the paint can, seal the lid. It's pressed down. It seals. You let it sit for a while, for several days. And 
the, the most interesting thing happens from a chemical standpoint. If there's been accelerant like gasoline or kerosene that's been used and so the clothing was saturated, even if they were subjected to fire, the remnant of those fumes from that accelerant, guess what they do? They rise to the top. They rise to the top out of, out of that clothing to the top of that can, and then a big needle is inserted into the top of that can, and that air is drawn off. And then the air is placed into laboratory equipment, uh, uh, a gas chromat- chromatograph, actually. And we get these little readouts that tell, tell us specifically what agent was used. Everything has a very specific chemical signature. You know, give us an idea as to what agent was used as the accelerant. And again, another great piece of evidence, because if you can put that gas can or that particular type of gas or agent into the hand of a perpetrator, sometimes you can get a slam dunk. Investigators did get a slam dunk in this case, Joe. Sergio Correa will be in prison for the rest of his life. Ruth Correa was sentenced to 40 years. She accepted a plea deal for testifying against her brother. Such a very sad case. Horrible. The the life of this family has been so disrupted and destroyed. But at least these people are off the street. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? 
Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.